Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 44. It's the second episode of a two-episode series that we began in episode 43. It's the fascinating story about Julia Ann Mercer. There's no introduction needed here, so let's just get right into it. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 44. So all of a sudden, it's now her word against the FBI agent's word, her word against the sheriff's department, her word that the first photo session actually took place on that Saturday and on the other facts, too, that we will summarize in a moment. Clearly, the written report by the FBI makes no mention of that photo identification session ever occurring, at least not on the 23rd. But we know that the FBI did meet with her two more times on the 25th and the 28th, two dates that were after Ruby shot Oswald. In those two meetings, they would again show Mercer a pool of photos for the purposes of identifying the men in the green pickup truck. And yes, the photo pools during that exercise on those dates would include photos of Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. And yes, all of that would be well documented in the FBI reports. If you're a skeptic or a conspiracy theorist, You don't have to be a super sleuth to start having suspicions about what the FBI did here. I bet what you're anticipating I'm going to say is exactly what I'm going to say. And it's exactly what Garrison said and also implied. That is, that the additional two FBI photo sessions, which occurred on the 25th and the 28th, whether they were legitimate follow-up or just a clever cover or a bit of both, well, they conveniently allow the FBI and then later true to form, others like Professor McAdams, to proclaim simply that, yes, the photo sessions did occur, but Miss Mercer must have been mistaken about the timing of them. Simple explanation. Slam dunk right over the head of the power forward on the conspiracy team. Not quite game over yet, though. Now, at the risk of being redundant, let's pause for a moment and absorb all of this fantastic information one more time. Why would the FBI have shown her a set of pictures on Saturday, November 23rd, in an attempt to identify the driver, a group of pictures that included a picture of Jack Ruby? How could a picture of Ruby have made its way into that collection of individual photographs that they placed in front of her for identification purposes? At that moment, Ruby had yet to do anything wrong, and he was ostensibly an unknown figure at that moment in the JFK assassination. It would not have been until the next day, Sunday morning, when he made his way to the basement of the Dallas Police Department and shot Oswald, that he would become a known and central figure in all of this. And even then, certainly not as an identified member of the assassination team. Although, of course, rumors would swirl about his real motives as soon as he did shoot Oswald. And those rumors still swirl today. Regarding the FBI, it was their bad luck that they were there with Julia Mercer on Saturday. 
You know, the FBI was accused of a number of things in the JFK assassination, but one thing they did well, and in this case, much to their own chagrin, they were efficient. The amount of investigative work that they did in the week to 10 days after the assassination really was prodigious under any method of measurement, and really regardless of any criticisms around it. But this time, having this conversation on Saturday and not on Sunday afternoon or later would be a match that would light a fire, a maelstrom around conspiracy. Now, let's talk about the problems in the affidavit and the FBI reports that were also falsely conformed related to a number of key facts. And of course, I say falsely based on statements made primarily by Jim Garrison. Okay, let's roll the tape back to the day of the assassination. Mercer was serious about what she had seen, so she let the sheriff's department know, and her Dallas County Sheriff's Office affidavit was taken on the same day as the assassination, later in the day on November 22nd. It has a few differences from how Garrison would tell it in his book, and of course you can always thank Professor McAdams for finding the discrepancies between everyone's uh, testimony and statements. Well, first, in her original affidavit, Miss Mercer describes that the men had pulled out a gun case, and she states it using incredible precision when proclaiming the dimensions of the case itself. A somewhat unusual way to describe it, I would think, but again, certainly with precision. And by the time Garrison was telling the story, the gun had been wrapped in brown paper. Not sure why Garrison would have made that change to her original story as set forth in her affidavit, or rather why Miss Mercer would say that. Certainly, wrapped in brown paper might make it easier to attest the idea that it was a gun in whatever enclosure that she saw. A gun case might leave it to interpretation that perhaps it was some form of irregularly shaped toolbox. But a gun, wrapped in brown paper, where the contours and the shape of the gun were easily identifiable? Now, that is a different story. Again, we don't know whether this was a change made by the fact that Mercer specifically stated this to Garrison in their Clay Shaw trial preparation, or whether this is some form of enhancement to Garrison himself added to the narrative. I guess we'll never know. You know, one of the other interesting parallels is that obviously, in terms of it being sensational, they say that Oswald's rifle was wrapped in brown paper as well. Well, as I said, Mercer never publicly opined on this particular fact. That is, opined independently one way or the other, independent of Garrison's representation. I wish she had. Second, but probably more important, according to Garrison, the sheriff's affidavit itself, along with the two FBI reports, state that Julie was unable to get a good look at the driver of the car and would be unable to identify that individual. According to Garrison, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And when Garrison in 1969, again in preparation for the Clay Shaw trial, showed Mercer these documents, that is the FBI reports and the so-called signed affidavit, she was apparently aghast. This was the first time she was seeing them and understanding the material distortion of what she had seen, the material distortion of what she had said to both the sheriff's office and the FBI agents during that week in 1963. Third, she also had no recollection of telling them that there was lettering on the side of this green pickup truck. 
dark lettering that said air conditioning. As she recalls it, there was no lettering at all on that truck, and she never gave them a statement as such. That is, that there was lettering on the truck. Where that came from, well, who knows? Maybe they talked to a few of the policemen there that day. Maybe that is where that came from. But it certainly was not consistent with what she said, and it should not have been in her statement. And interestingly enough, the letters air conditioning on the side of the truck prompted a well-documented and significant search by the FBI in the couple of weeks afterward to find this now infamous green pickup truck. They never found it. And if you are garrison, you believe this search is nothing more than a tidy mechanism to provide another dose of legitimacy to what was in those FBI reports and the affidavit. In other words, plant a knowingly false statement and then follow up on it to give it credibility and then force the witness into stating that that is not what she said, painting a story that the witness essentially is recanting on what truly was in the report. And therefore, if they could recant on one fact, well, they could recant on others as well. I know, I know, far-fetched. But if you are a conspiracy theorist, maybe not so much so. Maybe the real truth is that they just took it down wrong, and it really was just an honest mistake. But that seems too coincidental to be stated in both the affidavit first and then the FBI reports that came after. Those interviews are supposed to reflect what people say in the interviews, and she would have had to have said it twice, wrongly, or two different people would have had to have, very coincidentally, taken it down wrong. Probably about the same chances as a monkey perfectly retyping the first book of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay, I'm just saying. Well, let's just go ahead and read her sheriff's office affidavit, stated for the record here, and then I'll point out right afterward a few more discrepancies, and we'll continue the conversation. On November 22, 1963, I was driving a rented white Valiant automobile west on Elm Street, and I was proceeding to the overpass in a westerly direction and at a point about 45 or 50 feet east of the overhead signs of the right entrance road to the overpass. There was a truck parked on the right-hand side of the road. The truck looked like it had one or two wheels up on the curb. The hood of the truck was open. On the driver's side of the truck, there were printed letters in black, oval-shaped, which said air conditioning. This was a pickup truck, and along the back side of the truck were what appeared to be toolboxes. The truck was a green Ford with a Texas license. I remember seeing the word Ford at the back of the truck. A man was sitting under the wheel of the car, and slouched over the wheel. This man had on a green jacket, was a white male, and about in his 40s, and was heavy set. I did not see him too clearly. Another man was at the back of the truck, and reached over the tailgate, and took out from the truck what appeared to be a gun case. This case was about eight inches wide at its widest spot, and tapered down to a width of about four inches to five inches. It was brown in color, it had a handle, and it was about three and a half to four feet long. The man who took this out of the truck then proceeded to walk away from the truck, and he reached down to free it. He then proceeded to walk across the grass and up the grassy hill, which forms part of the overpass. This is the last I saw of this man. 
I had been delayed because the truck which I described was blocking my passage, and I had to wait until the lane to my left cleared so I could go by the truck. During the time that I was at this point and observed the above incident, there were three policemen standing, talking near a motorcycle on the bridge just west of me. The man who took what appeared to be the gun case out of the truck was a white male who appeared to be in his late 20s or early 30s, and he was wearing a gray jacket, brown pants, and a plaid shirt, as best I can remember. I remember he had on some kind of a hat that looked like a wool stocking hat with a tassel in the middle of it. I believe that I can identify this man if I see him again. The man who remained in the truck had light brown hair, and I believe I could identify him also if I were to see him again. Well, first of all, the statement as written says that she didn't see the face of the driver too clearly. That is definitely in contrast to how Garrison describes it in his book. And honestly, I'm not sure how she would have gotten a good look at the driver either if she was in a vehicle that was behind the truck. Now, she did describe a circumstance where the traffic was moving slowly, and clearly she implied that she might have been stopped right next to the truck, or at least right next to the portion of the truck where the driver was seated. Normally, you wouldn't be able to see the driver until you finally pass the truck and then look over. Well, all of that is speculation, so I'm not going to make any more comment on it, but one could see, if you were an experienced FBI or law enforcement agent, how it might be easy to manipulate that particular part of the statement. On the other hand, her affidavit said that the other man in the truck, not the driver, but the other man, had light brown hair, and she thought that she could clearly identify him if she could see him again. That's a pretty strong statement. So apparently, they were okay with her being able to see into the cab of the truck somehow and notice this man, but not the driver. Now, again, you would have thought the FBI and the sheriffs must have noticed that this was probably odd if you were going to alter the statement on the driver only because you were concerned about Ruby. Again, that's all speculation. And just as an aside, it really was a bold statement by a witness to be put in a discoverable document that she could identify an assailant if she saw him again, especially at a moment when the entire world was worried about saying that, saying that they could identify anyone involved in the assassination of the president. Remember, this was Dallas in 1963, and people on a practical basis well, it was pretty clear to witnesses that if they could and would kill the president, well, they would certainly have no issues taking out a witness. This, I believe, by the way, to be a very, very credible fear and a very true and basic assumption associated with a conspiracy, conspiracy of this nature. Second of all, she clearly describes a gun case and apparently gives fairly precise measurements, not a gun wrapped in paper, which is how it is described in Jim Garrison's rendition of the story that is contained in his book, Heritage of Stone. Garrison, of course, I suspect, if he could be here today, would maintain that the story as he told it is the story as told to Garrison by Mercer, as he was interviewing her as part of his preparation for the Clay Shaw trial, some five or six years later. This is, ostensibly, when all the revelation came about that her testimony had been altered and Garrison was sure of it based on his conversation with Julie Mercer herself. 
Mercer did talk to Garrison in that time frame, and she did cooperate to some extent as part of his investigation. But she never gave any testimony at the Clay Shaw trial, and as far as the false narratives that the government had planted right in the middle of her statements, and the whole mess around identifying Ruby in the FBI's photo identification process, which by this point in time, Garrison was now trumpeting, why she didn't become more vocal about it is a bit of a mystery, given the far out and fantastic aspects of her experience here. But I think, again, you have to go back to the basic premise that witnesses in general were wary. Wouldn't you be? And a witness that saw what she saw? Well, she was probably damn scared. We'll never know because she never wrote a book. She never sought the limelight. Indeed, she ran from it. In my mind, this gives some credence that what happened, the alterations by the authorities, may have really taken place. Garrison says that her sheriff's office statement, as well as other subsequent statements she made to the FBI, have all been altered to render the statements useless and in the eyes of the authorities, not credible. Now, let's just stop right there. This is sort of an inflection point for many in terms of how you might be thinking about the assassination case as we move forward. Why am I saying that? Because you can only go two ways on all of this. First, you can stop and take a very traditional view, such as Professor McAdams takes. He says in a nutshell something like this about it all. First, who would pull up in a pickup truck in broad daylight on Elm Street as the main egress to carry a weapon up and put it in place just an hour or two before the assassination, and do it in such a way as to almost, by definition, attract the attention of bystanders in the plaza or the notice by even a passerby going through the plaza, such as Julie Mercer, and then also do it right in front of a handful of policemen. Oh, and then to add one more thing on top of all of that, to choose that route right there on that portion of Elm when you could have used a less noticeable route into the parking lot behind the grassy knoll, noticeably by using the Elm Street extension, perhaps with a gun just kept in the trunk of a car. Okay, well, honestly, he's got a very credible argument here for a reasoned skeptic. Or you can take the more far-out view, sort of the mission impossible view of it. But I believe you then have to believe the following that the FBI did alter their report from Saturday by excluding any discussion associated with the photo identification process that supposedly occurred in that session and the identification by Mercer in that session of Ruby and her selection of him from pictures they had included for the review. You also have to believe that the FBI subsequently altered their follow-up reports when they came back a few days later on the 25th and the 28th. First, they had to ensure that those reports were in conformity with what they had done to the sheriff's affidavit. And they also had to imply that the only two photo sessions were on the 25th and the 28th and not on the 23rd, thereby making it believable that the witness just got the dates wrong of the meetings where the photo identification was introduced and that the photo identification sessions, the ones that actually took place, took place on the 25th and the 28th only. And finally, you have to believe that the Dallas police or those few cops assigned to guard the area were actually in on it 
Because if this young lady who just happened to be driving by saw this gun case, then there just seems to be no way that the two or three cops that were standing around for all that time, waiting with the construction men, waiting for the second truck to come back and tow the first truck away, well, there just seems to be no way that they would not have seen one of those men scampering up the hill with a gun case in hand. And if they were good cops, not done anything about it. Either that or they were really disinterested and perhaps distracted cops. All three of them, all at the same time, in one of the most important security details of their lifetime, if not the most important. And then finally, you have to believe that her original sheriff's affidavit was somehow altered and or forged and made to conform to those later FBI reports. Boy, that's a lot. You would have to believe all of that. Man, you can't write this stuff. Now, the reason I say this is a moment of inflection is that hardly anyone doubts that this young lady genuinely says that she saw what she saw. She saw one of those men taking out a gun case or a gun wrapped in paper as part of that scene. So what do you do with that? Throw it out? Seems hardly appropriate to do that. It just doesn't seem likely that she would have made all this up. You know, over the years, in fact, she exhibited every indication that she wanted no part of it, that it had been thrust upon her. And as wild and out of bounds as Garrison's statements were at times, here he was saying that the FBI statements for her had been altered, as well as material changes to her original sheriff's affidavit. Well, and there is some documented corroboration that does exist from her on all of this that took place as part of Garrison's investigation. For instance, Miss Mercer did finally charge that a phony affidavit to the Dallas Sheriff's Office had been drawn up to correspond to the FBI's altered reports. The original affidavit that was allegedly signed by Julia Ann Mercer herself, but she claims it's a forgery. She said in her statement, I never signed any such document. That affidavit is a crude forgery. That is not my signature. Miss Mercer made this declaration in 1968 when she finally got to see the document with her alleged signature on it. She then signed a witnessed statement denying that it was her handwriting. See what I mean? As a juror, you are really at an interesting place. Don't you wish you could hear someone question her more? For what it's worth, I would like to understand how much she knows about guns and gun cases and why she is so sure that that gun case or that gun wrapped in paper was actually a gun. I would like to find the three construction workers. They could have easily been traced down and even possibly identified by the policemen involved. Chances are that checking them out and determining that all of them were regular Joes just doing their job would have put it to bed, and perhaps even be ID'd by Mercer. I find it hard to believe that if the firm owning the trucks was the construction company that was doing the work at the site they went back to, at the National Bank, to get the second truck, that they could have easily been tracked down. That makes the FBI search for that vehicle and the air-conditioned lettering that have been added to the affidavit seem even more secret agent-like. A way to throw off the search. Well, regardless, more direct questioning under oath, that would have really helped here. All of that might have at least made a juror's job a little bit easier here anyway. 
While I'm thinking about it, remember the newspaper account just a few episodes ago when Earl Goltz from the Dallas Morning News reported on the man named Hardy who was driving through the plaza and saw men on the overpass with a few guns, a few long guns. We don't know much about him yet, so I won't say any more, but that lingers in the back of my head now that I've heard this testimony. Is he credible? I wonder. We'll have to see at some point. So, getting back to this whole idea that you are at a philosophical crossroads, the Rubicon, so to speak, is a juror. Well, let me back up. I don't know if you personally are there or not, but I chose to tell you this story at this point because after 42 episodes, many of us feel the same way. Straddling the fence is just a tough place to hang out. Certainly, you have to stay objective, but after 42 episodes, some opinions should be in some advanced stage of incubation. Oh, I forgot. This is the JFK case. Ugh. Well, let's end on trying to better illustrate just what I am trying to convey here, something that portrays the sort of opposing philosophies that have come to bear on the JFK assassination research community, the Titans' struggle. Conspiracy versus Lone Gunman Duel. I don't think there is a better way to illustrate this than by closing with some quotes from Professor McAdams and Sylvia Mayer. They both are highly respected researchers, and Mayer made her comments before the Garrison trial revelations. They both had something to say about the Mercer matter. So here goes. We'll start with Professor McAdams. Mercer's early perceptions are clearly honest if a bit overwrought. In the wake of the assassination, events that might otherwise seem mundane can take on a sinister tone. A stalled truck in Dealey Plaza may seem suspicious, and a toolbox may seem to look a lot like a gun case. Further, if one is interviewed twice by the FBI, one might later confuse what photos one saw in which interview, and what first looked like a gun case might become a rifle wrapped in paper. Scholarly research on memory shows such things are well within the realm of possibility. It is far easier to say her testimony is unreliable than to conclude she has been lying. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. This is what supporters of the lone gunman theory say about this witness. Supporters of the Warren Commission's conclusions, and in uh, true fashion with Professor McAdams, he does have some reason points. But in some cases, though, when he can't logically and rationally and prudently explain away facts that he recognizes are true, but that he just can't seem to explain any other way, well, I think he just plain overreaches with his conclusions. In this case, the witness, in his view, is not lying. The witness is simply unreliable. And not credible would be a harsher way to say it, and the commission in this young lady's case may have stopped short of using its favorite term. They probably would have been endeared with Professor McAdams' elegant use of the term unreliable in this case. But I think they just did. In the case of Julie Mercer, what they did so well during the entire course of the review, they just let this sleeping dog lie. No mention of not reliable, no mention of not credible. So let's pivot to the final word. Defense always gets it. 
Here is what Sylvia Mayer said in her book, Accessories After the Fact. Another witness, Julie Mercer, on the morning of the assassination, while she was driving toward the overpass, said she had seen a man carrying a rifle case walk across the grass and up the grassy hill, which forms the overpass. She gave a detailed and precise description of the incident. In an apparent reference to Julia Mercer, Forrest Sorrells testified before the Warren Commission that this lady said she thought she saw somebody that looked like they had a gun case. But then I didn't pursue that any further because then I had gotten the information that the rifle had been found in the building and shells and so forth. Sylvia Mayer would say in response to all of that, it would have been logical at this point to ask Forrest Sorrells during his sworn testimony to the Warren Commission how he would be so sure within an hour after the assassination and presumably before the arrest of the lone Oswald that the discovery of the rifle in the book depository was sufficient to eliminate other assassins in other locations. No such question was ever asked by counsel for the commission. <laughs> well, there you have it. That dog was left still, lying on the floor. Thank you for listening to episode 44 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 